Leonard Cohen suggested there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This viral crack gives us a chance to create something new and better. So let's talk about back to different and let the light in. Well, I'm back in the saddle after a bit of a hiatus from uh, a busy life, which is not a complaint. And I have stumbled through Biz Catalyst, another um, person who writes in such a fashion that it sucked me in and I wanted to comment. And of course, as soon as I did that, I also wanted to meet them. And as soon as I did that, I wanted to record them with my, with my usual Taurus-like tenacity. So here I am with Colin Heyman, who lives in the UK and distance is meaningless because I'm 18 inches away from him as I am from everyone in the world right now, which is kind of neat and kind of frustrating, but it works. So as I often do, Colin, I'm just going to ask you to tell your, tell your story. How did you get here? Okay. Um, well, um, I suppose in terms of my work, I started off my working life in my mid-twenties as a computer programmer. Um, I worked for BT, which was the main then the main telephone company here in the BT, in, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I love solving problems. Uh, I love quizzes. I love crosswords, cryptic crosswords. However, I also realized that um, it was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, I didn't really care about the telephone system, and I really wasn't passionate about computer systems either. They were just interesting problems. So um, I was looking for an out, and uh, I was lucky in that at some stage, the organization started offering voluntary redundancies. Um, and the way I often think about it, the way I often tell people is that at some point I decided that people were more interesting than machines, if at times infinitely more frustrating. And what I mean by that is a, pro a computer program isn't working. You look at the code, you look at the code. Finally, you work out where it's wrong. You amend the code. It works. People, of course, are different and uh, everyone's different. You can try something with a group one day and it goes down brilliantly. And with another group the next day, it goes down like a lead balloon. And that, of course, is what is wonderful about people, but it's also at times what is frustrating about them. Uh, you know, there aren't easy answers. People are complex. And I love that. And I suppose the other route into what I do now, which is partly around leadership, but actually the majority of it now is around diversity and inclusion, came from when I started doing something called co-counseling. And I was a very shy, quiet boy and felt I needed in my 20s that I needed to do something to kind of think more about who I was and develop myself, I suppose. And I had some friends who did this co-counseling and I tried it. And it, uh, I did it for quite a long time and it made a huge difference. But something about the type of co-counseling I did was that they looked at it in two ways. They looked at what stopped you reaching your potential as a human being, as a person, in two ways. And part of that was your family of origin and, you know, your experiences there. But the other part of it was how society limits you because of the group you belong to. You know, so we did a lot of work uh, around gender. We'd have men work, male men's workshops, and then men and women together. 
uh, all sorts, race and allies, black people and allies, and Jews and Gentiles. And yeah, that was a huge amount of the work, a huge amount of the work. And that really introduced me to loads of ideas about how uh, what I would call oppression limits how much we can be as human beings. Um, and really got me into thinking about diversity and inclusion. So when I left BT, which was 25 years ago now, um, I wasn't sure as one isn't. I knew I was going to set up on my own because I had absolutely no qualifications in the field in which I wanted to go into. <laughs> I could never have got a job. Um, I did a master's degree, which was almost completely experiential, um, which also was a huge uh, learning curve for me and really so helpful. Um, but I didn't know what was going to work out. And, you know, I tried various things. But over time, it ended up with me doing leadership and diversity and inclusion. And I just feel so lucky that I ended up doing something that I love, um, that I feel like I was meant to do. Um, I love facilitating. I love working with groups. And despite what I said about the frustration of people earlier on, I love working with people. <laughs> I suspect that 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 we're approximately contemporaneous because the uh, 60s and this may just be my ego, but I feel sorry for people who didn't experience the 60s. <laughs> I really do. So uh, several things which you said um, about the difference between writing code and dealing with human beings. I myself am shy and I always test out as an introvert. And I love people. And that tension is part of why I love what I do. I mean, I like being tired after being around people all day because it's a, it's a useful thing. And it was, it's called co-counseling, like, like yep. CO. Okay, yep. I wanted to be sure. Um, what you said about limits, about limits from our, from our family of origin, and the societal and cultural and boundaries, community, and all those ex external things. When I started teaching a long time ago, I didn't understand what I could do. I thought that there were things that I should do, and they weren't the best things. But I didn't know that there was a difference because I was limited by the expectations of that I had about what teachers did. You know, teachers stand in the front of the room with a chalkboard back then and, and go squeak, squeak, squeak. And then the kids are supposed to learn that. And then the kids are supposed to spew it out some at some point in the future in order to get an A. Yeah. And it never felt right, Colin. It didn't feel right, but I thought this is what you're supposed to do. Just, you know, so what you said about limits, what if our, our boundaries are impositions on our possibilities. Absolutely. That's absolutely what, what I think. You know, that both of those things we were told by our parents and our contemporaries and those societal expectations are, you know, do act to limit our possibility. I think there's been huge progress on that. You know, um, it's also, but yeah, I think they're there. Uh, also interesting what you say about teaching. You know, I work in a field in terms of equality, diversity and inclusion where 
people have been taught that there's right and wrong. And if you get it wrong, you're in trouble. And so often, you know, so you, you talked about how your expectations on you and what you thought a teacher was. But actually, it's also from the other side. And I don't know if that was the case when you were in the classroom. But it certainly is with my work that the people coming on that I'm working with are asking, so what do I do? What's the answer to this? <laughs> um, so there's that juggling act as well. And, you know, the temptation uh, often you know, I know a lot about diversity and inclusion. I'm an expert. I've been working in it for 20 years. Uh, and, it, you know, so the temptation to give of that wonderful expertise I've got, as opposed to, first of all, facilitating people to come to their own conclusion, working with them. But also, there isn't an answer because you're talking about people. When You know, if, when I started, I used to run race awareness stuff. And I used to reckon that the main question people had who came on the courses were, were, what do I do when I meet a Muslim? I mean, I'm caricaturing a bit, but, you know, Muslims are very high profile, very different people coming from a good place with good intentions, nervous about getting it wrong. But actually, and they want an answer from me. This is what you do when you meet a Muslim. (laughs) But actually, that question, and I live in, in the UK, as you said, I actually live in Wales. It's equivalent to what do I do when I meet a Welsh person? (laughs) it's kind of, you know, I see where it comes from. So I love playing with or or working with, you know, that desire for an answer. Um, And as I say, it's both sides. It's my own sort of um, delight in my expertise and and wanting to show off a bit. Um, But, and, you know, having to play that down to work with them and start from where they are, but it's also their own expectations and, and working with that. Back a step to what you said about writing code is that we have, I think, and I'm, whenever I say we, it's always dangerous, you know, uh, but we have a sort of built-in desire for the code. The code. Well, how do I talk to women? How do I talk to Jewish people? How do I talk to white people? How do I talk to black, you know, how do I talk to children? And, and if you go into a bookstore, there are rows of books that tell you what the code is. Of course, they're all different. In my work, which is pretty parallel to yours, it's not a specific. One of the things that discovered me, because I don't take credit for it, is that if I back off, but push, ask open, but very challenging questions, push, but don't push like, well, here's what you should do. And I know that kind. I will bet that I've had 2% of the tens of thousands of people that I've worked with over these 25 years who didn't rise to the occasion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, some of the feedback I get, which I like most, particularly around coaching that I do is, I ask good questions, and that feedback really pleases pleases me. Difficult questions to answer, and I think you're absolutely right. And one of my favourites, I think uh, I may have said it when we were on a, another call together, uh, one of my favourites, I only came across this a few years ago, I, can't, I think it comes from solution-focused coaching, is you ask a difficult question, and the person you're coaching says, I don't know. And you say, yeah, but if you did know, what would the answer be? 
and they come up with an answer. And the first time I saw that happen, I was completely astounded. <laughs> but if you actually just operate with the belief that they do know the answer, uh, it kind of um, it doesn't always work. But uh, it's amazing. It's amazing that 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 does work. So yeah, I, I love questions. I love facilitating. I think as well as society sort of being a, a place where you know there's there's supposed to be answers um i also think my particular field is one where that has been propagated you know that, that and i think that's been about a really not helpful thing that's right and wrong and if you get it wrong you're cast into the outer wilderness you're a bad person um and i wish we could get to a place around diversity and inclusion where it's much more about conversation it's much more about emotional intelligence it's about learning from mistakes you know all that sort of stuff rather than this place where people come on courses so i can tell them everything so that they won't make a mistake which is obviously impossible a lot to unwrap there i love it um you know, things show up. If I just listen and pay attention and and relax, <laughs> things show up that I need to know. And I'm, I'm not trying to be like, we are the world. You know, this is just the truth of experience, I think. And mm -hmm. what you said about mistakes, one of the worst lessons I learned, and I didn't learn it because I'm stupid. I learned it because I wanted to survive, was that making a mistake was bad me and i see in my coaching work i see and in my my work with uh, groups i see places where that is an underlying law that's a rule and in organizations what happens next i think is two things and they're scary things but they happen one is it's better to do nothing than to do something wrong and that's horrible and number two, if you make a mistake, cover it up as fast as you can so nobody ever finds out about it. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it shuts down creative thinking. People aren't going to try anything that's different uh, because it is more risky. If it doesn't work out, they're going to get clobbered. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. And there are so many organizations like that. So how can we, and I, this is, this is a giant question. Um, actually, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do sideways for just a second. I'm come back. Are you familiar with the? Uh, she writes. She writes mysteries. Her name is Louise Penny. No, she's a wonderful writer. She's fabulous. And in one of her books, she said, "These are the four sentences which will lead you to wisdom." I was wrong. I'm sorry. I don't know, and I need help. Yeah, fantastic. And that yeah. goes, we're from different cultures in lots of ways, but that goes so against the programming that I grew up with. And I don't think because my parents were bad or evil, but as somebody said to me, they couldn't teach you anything that they didn't know. Hmm. Hmm. So how much of your movement counter to your upbringing or culture, do you attribute to 
your own personality, your own likelihood of challenging and exploring in spite of what maybe you were directed to do. And were there like turning points in your life? I know you said that, that, that you kind of got out of the code thing um, because you wanted to do more with people as cantankerous as they are. Were there, were there, were there moments since that change when you've gone, aha, well, first of all, I think we always carry with us that stuff from our parents. We work on it, we moderate it, it doesn't rule us as much, but we still carry it with us. So, for example, I think one of the things I got from my parents, which, you know, like most of the politics, is a good thing and a bad thing, is being a bit of a perfectionist. You know, so after I've run a course, I'll forget about the 25 things I did brilliantly and remember the one thing I wish I'd done differently. Um, but, I, but now I, I, I kind of recognize that inner critic and tell it to go away. I, in fact, I swear at it. Um, um, so, you know, but it's still there. I, I don't get rid of it altogether. Um, I also think one of the things that helped me, and I'm not quite answering your question because it's before that, is I was, you know, I said I was shy. I was very quiet. I was very thoughtful. And I always say it's the quiet ones you have to watch. I remember people at university who were really loud about being revolutionaries. Of course, they all ended up as people in the city or lawyers or stockbrokers right. or whatever. It's the quiet ones you have to watch because I think, you know, the fact that I was outside to a certain extent, what was going on helped me to sort of, you know, in a way, I've always been in that observer, situ you know, situation role that is part of facilitation. When I was younger, I had no idea what to do about what I was observing. That's something I acquired when I was older. But I think that basic idea that as a quiet person, you kind of notice what's going on more than the people who are in the middle of it. I think that's, that's just there. So I think that was part of my personality. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of, of turning points after things that have um, really struck me. Well, I, I'll tell you something else as well, which, again, is going back older. Uh, when I got into co-counseling, and, and this is only on reflection, I realize this. I grew up in a very intellectual family. Emotions were very hidden. But, uh, they were, you know, I remember times uh, when there was huge heaviness around uh, of emotion, but nobody talked about it. It's like a cloud. I always imagine it like a, a room with a cloud, a really heavy cloud in the ceiling that suffoc you know, is almost suffocating it, and no one's talking about it. Uh, when I got into co-counseling, you know, this, this type of counseling was all about emotion. And I realized, looking back, that it was, the world only started making sense to me when I, when I experienced it emotionally. All that intellectualizing, which I, I don't want to denigrate because it gave me a good brain. It made me able to think about things. Uh, it was really helpful in a lot of ways. And, you know, I was lucky in having a good education that helped me to think. And I think that's, that's great. But the world didn't make sense through thinking about it. The world makes sense through emotion. And when you're working with groups, when you're working with organizations and are interested to know whether you find the same, isn't it often things start to resolve when you ask the emotional question? Rather, I mean, you get people out of the thinking into the emotion. 
And it's not because they, you know, they suddenly change how they're thinking. It's that you're operating at an emotional level. And that's a level at which things can be resolved. Because although people, conflict, for example, is often intellectually discussed, or it's actually about emotion, but because of the way our society is, the only tools most people have to talk about that emotion is intellectually. Well, our familial environment is very similar. I didn't, I didn't hear either one of my parents use the F word feelings until I was in my 40s. And I think you are, you are spot on about that. When I first took the Myers-Briggs type indicator a long time ago, I came out as a very strong T. You know, Spock was my hero from the old Star Trek. And that's what I was known for. But I had some trauma for a few years, pretty heavy duty trauma. And when I took it again, I came out as a very strong F. And I was like, what happened? And I think what you said is more important than, than we pay attention to. And in my work, you know, what you said is, is just exactly right. And sometimes I have to be very sneaky when I, when I move my group from intellectualizing to feeling and even to spirit. Because if I ask just, well, how do you feel about that? Some of them are, are happy to go there, but some of them, you know, I have to bring them back now because they're like even farther away. Yeah. So when I, when I like give them group work, there is a strong implication in what I ask them to do that they're going to have to talk about their feelings, even if I don't say it that way. Yeah. And I think that that's one of our default settings. And once they start using the language of emotion, even if it starts subtly, like I was very surprised which is a feeling. I mean, you can, right? It, uh, that really bummed me out. All right. Once they start doing that, they do just what you're doing now is they smile. Because this is a conversation that is part of, uh, it is part of being human. I think it's a, it's a really important part. And it's a conversation we need to have more often because it's what, it's what, it's what makes us breathe. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, often the division, you know, the political divisions that are around the world at the moment in your country, in my country, and others, you know, a lot of that is about feeling, yeah. you know, ab uh, about people feeling threatened by the way things are changing. I, I remember once working with a group of nurses at a GP practice, a local doctor practice, and uh, I've been briefed that there was an older one who doesn't like change and they wanted to bring about changes. And she was the, you know, sh she was the one who was resisting. <laughs> and at one point I asked, you know, what are your attitudes to change? And one of the younger ones said, uh, uh, I love change. You know, I'm a bit of a change junkie. <laughs> <laughs> so you could see what was going on there. And, and then eventually I turned to the one who was, supposed to be the resistor and i said how do you feel about it and she said oh i don't mind change i just need to know what's you know what's going to happen i need to 
know more detail. I need to know how. We, so we spent the rest of the session trying to map it out a bit more. But of course, nobody had asked that question before. You know, so I completely agree with you. And I mean, that wasn't deep emotion. Right. But it was taking it to the emotional level. Completely agree with you that a lot of people don't have the language. So they say, I was surprised. I need to know. It is an emotion, even though it doesn't sound like it to those people who are more used to expressing themselves emotionally. But it's enough. And actually, often it's the tone as much as the words. That little bit of quavering in the voice or just, you know, a different tone. And, and I love it when that happens. And it's something where I have to be careful in my facilitation yep. because the reason I love it when it happens is because, I, like I say, I grew up in a child in a family where emotion was not talked about and I wanted it to be talked about. I found it really uncomfortable knowing that emotion was around and no one was talking about it. So now I've ended up as someone who, you know, encourages people to express the emotion that I wanted to express when I was young. And I have to watch myself. I have to watch myself that that encouragement of emotion within the group is useful for the group and is not coming from my need or my ancient need as a child to have emotion expressed. Wow. Because it is fragile. Yeah. When, when people start talking about the feelings who don't usually, it's a very fragile level of trust. And what you said about change, and this is from my experience, so I don't know if it's universal, <clears throat> is that I realized that I was not threatened by change. I was afraid of how I would feel when the change came. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was one of those bright light things for me is it's about the feelings so that if I can, I can accept the feelings as all real, you know, it's like all the colors, there's all the thousands of colors. N none of those colors is better or worse than the other. They're just colors. Yeah. Then I can sort of de, de uh, toxify my part of change, which is the part that I own. And that I always will. Mm. So let me ask you a question about now, about the pandemic, about this crack, this cataclysm, this whatever, however you want to frame it. Part of what I see in it, and I'm not being naive, I don't think, is that this is a real opportunity for us to uh, open some doors to fundamental changes about perception and emotions, spirit, being, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. So in your work in particular, have you seen those, those opportunities show up? I wouldn't say that I have particularly through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I can think of some examples, you know, that I hadn't heard of Zoom 16 months ago. I run champions groups within organizations and i'm particularly thinking of the first time the champions group met uh online and they hadn't been together they were all working from home and trying to get used to that and it was a pretty tight group um, a lot of connection there and i remember the, you know them coming online and a lot of emotion there in terms of being together in terms of seeing each other even if it was online 
And I, you know, I have to say that I realize how lucky I am through this pandemic in, yeah. you know, not having suffered from it and being in an extremely lucky position, even though I'm actually vulnerable because I have a kidney transplant. I'm on immunosuppressants. So I'm a vulnerable person in that respect. But, you know, in terms of still having work, in terms of having a financial fallback, if I didn't have work in terms of my relationship, in terms of where I live, having a house and a garden, I've, I've just been really unlucky. So the fact that I'm saying I haven't seen it, I don't want to in any way imply that it's not there. It's just perhaps not where I've been and, and what I, I haven't encountered it particularly. But I, I, in some ways, I'd like to answer your question, if I may, more broadly sure. in terms of you know, have we advanced in terms of emotional intelligence, in terms of ability to show emotions in the last, you know, and yeah, I'm I'm 65. So I didn't quite experience the 60s. I was a bit too late for that. But I experienced the aftermath in terms of the early 70s. Uh, You know, and have we advanced since then? And, you know, I always think with these things, there's been such huge progress. You know, I was brought up by a dad who was born in 1912. You know, is it the same year as the Titanic went down or the year after? I can't remember now. Uh, You know, and he was a lovely man, but he was very much brought up with the old style of being a man, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, because of that, you know, going back to what you were saying at the beginning about things we bring, you know, limits that are placed on us. um, You know, I was brought up not able to express emotions at all. When I got ill with my kidneys, um, I was on dialysis for a time. And when you're on dialysis, you have a liquid restriction because you're not peeing. So if you drink too much, it's very dangerous because your blood pressure goes up. And I couldn't stop drinking because I hadn't been able to talk about it. I hadn't been able to express anything about it. And um, uh, in the end, and I mean, when I say drinking, it was water, <laughs> but, but just as dangerous as if I'd been drinking alcohol. Uh, so they sent me to a psychiatrist and, and she said, it's okay to cry. And if you can't do it here, do it at home. And I lived on my own at the time. And, you know, I clearly remember sitting down in the armchair and crying for what must have been the first time for about 23 years. Wow. You know, and so, you know, that is, I suppose, part also of what, what took me on this journey. But, you know, I think of examples, uh, you know, from, from what it was like when I was growing up. Uh, where that was completely accepted, you know, that people didn't show emotion, particularly men, to, you know, we've just had the Olympics. And, you know, I love sport, particularly I love the athletics. You know, you see tears all over the place, tears of joy, tears of frustration, tears of disappointment, and from men as well. Um, You know, one of the best best parts of the, or moments of the Olympics for me was in the high jump, when Barshim and the Italian guy decided to share the gold medal and just started hugging each other and sort of grinning hysterically. And, you know, those sorts of moments were, were, were fantastic. So I think in the public space, there is much more room for emotional expression now than there used to be. And there's still a huge way to go as well. And organizationally, you have organizations where you you know i you know one of the good things about where i worked uh when i was working in computers was i worked in a team where it was okay to come in in the morning and say i'm in a bad mood today 
you know, <laughs> and then if you snapped at somebody, people knew, okay, he's just in a bad mood today. Or, you know, they say, okay, I'm going to stay clear of him today. Uh, <laughs> we had a phrase for it, I can't, can't remember, but, you know, I mean, that's the early 90s, but, you know, I cannot imagine that even 10 years before, probably. Um, I think in some organizations, you know, a lot of things have changed. People do realize more of this stuff. And then there's all the stuff around emotional intelligence, which was not really a thing until, what, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? About 30. Yeah. And I wish they'd teach it in schools because, you know, I just think that is another thing that is now accepted by a lot of people um, and so important. And by the way, important in my field, diversity and inclusion, which is not always associated with, you know, going back to people are supposed to know the answer, but actually because right. you're dealing with people, situations that are complex and what you need is emotional intelligence. If, if you're black and I want to ask you about what your life is like, um, you know, people say, can you ask? And I say, well, it's fine to ask. Most people are okay, but you have to respect it if they don't want to tell you. So you need the intelligence to notice how the other person is reacting and to ask those questions that, you know, or to say, okay, that's fine. You don't want to talk about it, you know, so it is an emotional intelligence thing. So I think in a lot of ways, you know, we've improved hugely. And I think there's a lot, lot of way to go. There's still loads of people in organizations who think that emotions, you know, this is the image i always have you go into work and there's some lockers in the lobby as you go in and that's where you put all the bits of yourself you can't take into work and in a lot of places that includes emotion um and so we've got a long way to go still you know um yeah i, I use a cartoon in my work about emotional intelligence and it's a farmer talking to his little son who's a little boy and in back of him is a barn that is festooned with all these chains and locks. And he says, all right, son, listen, whenever you have a feeling, you here's the key. You come out here, you put it in this barn, you lock it up. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so, Colin, um, you have grandchildren and nieces. Uh, godchildren and, and nieces and nephews, yeah. Godchildren. So, somewhere down the line... They are in school and their teacher says, you know, 2020 was a tough year. They're doing a history lesson. And how would you like these children when the teacher said, does anybody have any stories about their parents or their grandparents or their uncles about how they behaved? If they told the Colin Heyman during the pandemic story, what would you like that story? What would you like them to say about how you dealt with this? Mm. It's a difficult one. What do I want my legacy to be? I suppose in one way is is what you're asking. Yeah, you're asking is specifically around around the pandemic. I think um, I would like them. To know that I, I, I didn't get carried away by the extremes. I mean, one thing that's happened over these months is that most of the time we don't know. And yet again, we come back to that thirst to know. Yeah. And so, you know, the news has had the, um, you know, this expert saying, I think this, which then gets reported as someone said this as though it's true. And then the next day it was some another one. 
you know, and um, and that's my situation at the moment as things have opened up. As someone who's vulnerable, I hear people saying, I can't come out now because I'm afraid. And then I read an article which says vaccinations give people who are immunosuppressed almost as much coverage as people who aren't. So that's precisely the situation I'm in now, in a way, of hearing these different things. And the fact is, they don't know. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I'd like people to know that um, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to the extremes. I, I kept fairly balanced. But I suppose the other thing, and perhaps the more important thing, is that I kept connected with people. You know, and I think there's nothing more important than that. Um, as just keeping in touch with people, keeping connected to people, even if it's online. Um, and that, you know, those sorts of, that, that they were able to talk to me honestly and that I was honest back to them. You know, I think with children, we shield them a bit too much sometimes. Um, and there's a way of saying it that won't frighten them, but it's true. Um, so, yeah, I think some of that, that I supported them in whatever way they, they you know, uh, just being there for people is a sort of bit of a cliched phrase. But I also think that feeds into our work, yeah. that, that sort of listening to what's really going on, that giving permission for people in a group or in an organisation or just working one-to-one to say what's really going on for them. It's just so important. And I always say coaching people is just such an honor and a privilege because they tell you things they would never tell anybody else. And all you do is provide the space and like you say, ask some good questions. And yeah, I just feel it's a real privilege to be let in. Thank you, Colin. And maybe one of the things that is starting to have more life during the this COVID time is that a lot of us are, are, are starting to realize how important connection is. Absolutely. And also one thing that's really opened up is around mental health. Yeah. You know, and not having to keep it all together. And I really admire uh, people like Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka. I'm in particular Naomi Osaka actually, because she's been, um, I think so brave in, in what she's done, you know, in, in the way she's expressed, expressed herself, um, you know, and, and saying about the effect that press conferences have on her and that she's not going to, and, and the tennis world reacted appallingly, yes. you know, but she got so much support from that uh, as well. So, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think there's uh, a lot of hope around, even though we've got so far to go. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. I will be back in touch. Um, this is, I have built this or found this wonderful group of people through this platform whom I, whom I stay in touch with. And it is, it, as you said, it is such a privilege just to realize that whenever we connect, everybody benefits. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, very much look forward to more conversations. Yeah. Uh, lots to talk about. You haven't seen the last of me yet. <laughs> and All by right. the way, uh, one thing I didn't say is I love Leonard Cohen. I know you start this with Leonard Cohen. So uh, yeah, 
wonderful, wonderful Leonard Cohen. Absolutely. All right, my friend. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for giving us a listen. As we move forward with this situation, with this thing that's us, let's never forget that we are all in this together. No matter what else happens, we're all in this together. Thank you.